0: Hello and welcome back to Brace. On today's episode, I'm going to be discussing a book that Tommy read individually, which is The Bitcoin Standard, The Decentralized Alternative to Central Banking by Safadin Amous. So, Tommy, what made you read this book?
1: Well, Paul, uh, glad to be here again on on a wonderful Thursday evening. I chose to read this. I was gifted it as a present for Christmas back in, what, 2021? And I've actually brought on uh, the individual who gave me that book. Uh, so this is Cody McLaird He is a coworker of mine. And, you know, we would like to talk about money and investments. And as we talked more and more about crypto, he was like, you should probably read this. So I'll, I'll turn it over to him and let him answer why he gave me the book.
2: Yeah, so first of all, thanks, Paul and Tommy, for having me on. The reason I gifted this to Tommy was because... Uh, Bitcoin back in 2016, whenever it spiked to about 20,000, it kind of piqued my interest. And then again, when 2020 hits, uh, it piqued my interest again. But uh, I just wanted to learn more about Bitcoin. And um, I, I saw this book as mo- one of the most popular reads. So decided to give it a read. And I was pleasantly surprised it doesn't just talk about Bitcoin. It talks about the history of money and how that really impacts our lives as a, as a society and kind of the role that Bitcoin can play going forward and potentially be a future for money that uh, we all use.
0: That's great. Thank you for, uh, first of all, giving Tommy that book. I think that's going to spurn a good conversation here. Uh, and I'm curious, I mean, when it comes to the fiat standard and when it comes to decentralization and, and all of that, if some of our listeners aren't as familiar with some of that history there, what are some of the important terms that maybe you learned there or you learned more about uh, as
1: you were reading this book? So, I would say this book in general, uh, the first almost 200 pages barely mention Bitcoin and it's all about money. Uh, Cody and I were actually just speaking prior to this, and he had mentioned, you know, before reading this, if asked, what is money, probably wouldn't be able to say. But money is a way to convert goods and services between a I guess, the same store of value, right? So instead of trading apples for oranges- Shoes. Or shoes, right? The apples for shoes example. We're trying to trade a bucket load of of apples for a pair of shoes, right? The problems with that are apples eventually rot. The number of apples that someone may want for a pair of shoes may not even make sense, right? So it's a store of value that- over time, ideally increases in value. There's a couple of different terms uh, and I wish I had them highlighted and brought up right now, but in general, here, what were you gonna say? Do
0: they talk about the change to fractional banking?
1: So it definitely goes through each stage of kind of like when money was invented and then it goes into different forms of money. It further goes on to how money is being used and, I don't know if I honestly know the full definition of fractional reserve banking.
0: Uh,
1: so, the I'll give you just a, a 10 second, and for our
0: audience too, I know that's a it's a very hot term right now in finance because it lends to the idea that, say, the U.S. government can print money forever and not have re- repercussions as well. But fractional reserve banking is the. And I don't know which banking institutes all use those rules, but basically what it is, is say we have a uh, million dollars that we put into a bank. The bank is allowed to uh, loan out 900000 of those dollars. And then if, say, I put in the million dollars and then, Tommy, you get a loan for $900,000, but you get that loan and you put it in a bank, that bank can then loan out 810000 thousand of those dollars again. So the same dollar can be lent out essentially up to 10 times um, or way more than that, but basically at a 10% reduction each time. And that means that the total debt actually can very much outweigh the total actual dollars in circulation um, in the United States and in a lot of the Western countries, I know is, is how it's set up. And I'm not the one that read this book, right? But (laughs) that is my understanding of what the big appeal was of Bitcoin is there is a finite amount of Bitcoin. There will never be more uh, creative and therefore it's going to hold its value in a way that the US dollar won't necessarily because we see, you know, in 2020, oh, we printed 8 trillion new dollars to deal with COVID. So. That was what I anticipated talking about here, but I'm, I'm very curious, You know, what were your takeaways or what were the big points throughout the book that you wanna to touch on here?
1: Yeah, so I think what you're talking about is, in a sense, stock to flow ratio, right? So stock to flow ratio means how much is out there and then how much is coming in, right? So the best thing we had prior to Bitcoin, which is by its definition, by its code, right? It is law by code in Bitcoin that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. And the thing is that won't happen until 2140. So what goes on now is I believe what's called proof of work, right? So miners, what they're really doing is they're using their computing power, uh, to verify transactions between owners of Bitcoin. So, because it's decentralized and because it's now millions of different computers run the Bitcoin ledger, right? So it's a list of everybody's ownership of the Bitcoin. What happens is I want to, I want to give Cody two Bitcoin, right? And what needs to happen is I have to have two Bitcoin available to be given the, I guess, place that Cody's getting it, right? Has to be a real place, and so this mining is computing different different questions, right? And whoever comes up with the, I guess, correct response, right? Other other miners then verify that they've verified it. I'm not going to be able to do it justice, in all honesty. Uh, the book lays it out in a much much more understandable way. Let me ask a question
0: that might pop into someone's mind as as they listen to what you just said there. So the ledger of who owns what bitcoin is stored across a number of different computers or in a number of different places on the internet whatever you want to say there. Does that mean that if you own two bitcoin and you're you're sending them to Cody, there is one computer that knows that you have that one bitcoin or is the the mining Uh, confirmation over and over again that yes, this
1: location is still accurate. So as soon as it's verified that I have that Bitcoin to send and that he can receive it, right. That's what that mining is that verification process. Right. So as long as 51% of people accept this person who has, has mined the correct solution in a sense, then that Bitcoin will be transferred. Right. So everybody's ledger updates, right? And so these are what those computations are going on in the background, right? And so someone mining isn't really doing anything. They've just set up a computer to be checking for transactions and then trying to come up with the correct solution.
0: And then they essentially get paid for that work, right? For that expenditure of energy.
1: Right, and so he talks about kind of how it started. And I believe it was like, 100 or maybe it was 25 bitcoins given every about 10 minutes and every i believe it's four years that gets cut in half right so the amount that is given is reduced right and so it's it's that curve where it's it's got a four-year half-life in a sense yeah and so over time it 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 will Based on its code, end at 21 million.
0: So here's a here's I, a question that might not make sense, but in the year 2149 or whatever that we have all of the Bitcoin established, is there going to be an incentive structure for people to be still running those the miners, the people that are verifying the transactions? What's what's going to be the incentive for for that expenditure of energy?
1: Yeah. So. That's a uh, that's a good question because I actually posed it to Cody. And I believe there's a thing called proof of stake, right? So you kind of stake your Bitcoin that you own. And as people are verifying transactions, right, in order to keep Bitcoin up and operational, right, and to allow transactions, I'm putting my Bitcoin at stake to essentially help pay in a small bit, right? So Bitcoin is also divisible by was it one 100 millionth approximately it's uh, yeah. so a satoshi right <laughs> what's that yeah, called? satoshi I
2: satoshi. i think it's one 100 million but uh so the, the mechanism that tommy's talking about is called proof of stake which is what a lot of the newer blockchains are using because it's less energy intensive but one of the things that i've read about is whenever we do get to that point you're right paul what is the incentive uh, and they talk about there, ha- there, there would have to be some sort of fee structure implemented uh, versus going to proof of stake. So that's something that they would have to figure out when they get there. And uh, the network as a whole would have to kind of come to a consensus on what mechanism they wanted to do. But the proof of stake mechanism is, is being utilized in other blockchains. And I think there's a lot of arguments about it, is is that good or is that bad. So. <laughs>
0: Raises a lot of questions for me, to be honest, not just on that, but when you ask about like, what's the utility of Bitcoin or something like that, it acts as a money in some sense, but it also acts as a stock otherwise, right? When you say you have to decide, you know, what the answer is going to be as a community that means everyone that owns Bitcoin has their vote at the time when those decisions need
1: to be made on what's going to happen with the network, right? So that's that brings up a, two, a couple of different points. So they've tried in the past what's called a hard fork where someone wants to actually change the code of Bitcoin. So instead of making it divisible by 100 million, make it divisible by even more than that. Or instead of each Bitcoin being... I think it's somewhere like 10, no, eight megabytes of literal, I guess, space, right? Now it's, you know, increase that to 16. But this causes other issues. And there's this thing called status quo bias, where most people are just going to stick to what's going on. Because the threat of switching over, right, and, and making that hard fork, usually you won't get enough people to actually hop on board to make it worth something. The other thing you brought up was money starts out, right? Anything that becomes a money starts as a store of value, right? So right now, Bitcoin can't be a money just because it's so volatile, right? By the time I transact with you an amount of Bitcoin, it, the price could have changed by thousands of thousands of dollars, right? Because it, it, it takes some time right and i don't mean to take us off of bitcoin but honestly most of the book is is about money and that's why i would recommend it to people who want to learn more about money about investments i think that this was a better economics study than what i learned in college
0: well, I'm curious as well how it relates to what we read about in Sapiens, because I know that yeah. had a good history of how money worked in the world. You know, when you talk about a store of value, that's what I think about is I learned a lot it felt like in that book um, in regards to the history of money. What were the some of the big takeaways? I'll ask kind of again, if you had two or three things, say I'm a 21-year-old who is learning about investing, who's you know ha- just starting a real full-time job now. What can this book give you that's going to be of significant benefit?
1: So this book kind of explains the different thoughts of economics, right? And one thought of economics is these the Keynesian idea uh, that government control and economics working on making sure that inflation is only 3%. That's kind of the best way forward. Is it um, Keynesian? Keynesian K- or I, I read it as Keynesian. Okay. Um, one thing that relates to Sapiens, uh, how we talked about how consumers, well, in the olden times, right, people without any money would spend a lot more time actually trying to accumulate money and not spend it, right? Because it was more about survival. And then the kings, the rich people, would actually spend the money on feasts and tournaments and everything yeah, else. I, I was trying to think of a word, but... All good. But the same point is made here, uh, and this is one thing I highlighted. It is an ironic sign of the depth of modern economic ignorance, fomented by Keynesian economics, that capitalism, an economic system based on capital accumulation from saving, is blamed for unleashing conspicuous consumption, the exact opposite of capital accumulation. Capitalism is what happens when people drop their time preference, defer immediate gratification, and invest in the future. Debt-fueled mass consumption is as much a normal part of capitalism as asphyxiation is a part of respiration. So you can clearly see, in a sense, the bias from the author, and I don't necessarily think it's a bad bias. He makes a very good argument that what we're living in, in fiat currency, is not capitalism, right? Because the time value of your money is just decreasing, right? So there's no incentive to save, right? The only incentive is to spend and, and buy things or invest in something that isn't money. Uh, whereas in the past, right, when we were on the gold standard, the idea was we only print the money that we have literally stored in the central bank based on that being gold, right? So you turn it into paper money, and that's really just a receipt for gold, Right. And so when we switch to fiat currency, now the government controls how much is printed. And when you look at stock to flow ratios, right, how much is available out there and how much is being put into the system, gold still has only like a 3% stock to flow ratio, which means every year there's going to be about 3% more gold. Right. But everything else is. There was a good table. I don't have it pulled up, but it was something, something in the terms of like United States dollars is like twenty to twenty to one. Maybe it wasn't that intense. Maybe it was just twenty percent when I'm thinking about percentages. But without there being a consistent amount of money, this just then results in inflation, right? Your money becomes worth less, whereas gold has actually remained pretty much the same price when it comes to buying goods. But you see its value rise to somewhere, what, $1,200, uh, if not more. That's just its its value in dollars, right? So uh, I thought something interesting recently. That's uh,
0: the year 1994, uh, $100 is worth $200 today. So it, our money's value has been cut in half in less than 30 years. And when you look at the graphs of how – much money was essentially worth in terms of goods and services throughout the history of the United States, there is a clear change when we go off the gold standard. And that is something that I was hoping we would get to talk about today, because I think that's something that people don't really appreciate. And I was listening to a political commentator, I think it was in the past week, because the House Majority Leader, uh, Speaker of the House, excuse me, uh, Kevin McCarthy just said that there wouldn't be any attempt by the Republicans now that they've taken over to cut any sort of entitlement spending. And entitlement spending, that's you know Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and the interest on our debt takes up something like 65% of what we spend. Uh, and then- Defense spending is another big chunk and everything else to run the government is a, is another ton. But regardless, what they were saying is, look, we've got $31 trillion in debt. You know, we're approaching 120% debt to GDP ratio here. So we will never be able to actually pay down our debt. So the only thing we can do now is stay the empire of the world. Stay the world's police, stay in power, stay the most important economy. That's the only way because otherwise things can get really bad really fast. You know, I don't know if they talk about the, the politics side of things in the book, but I have always been fascinated by the creation of the Federal Reserve, the moving off of the gold standard, and, and really the possibility of a return, right? And, and I don't know if they talk about that at all, but like what's the future of money? I imagine since the name of the book is the Bitcoin standard, he's making some sort of a case for decentralized currency. Am I right?
1: So the thing about Bitcoin is because the stock to flow ratio is is fixed, right? As long as there isn't a hard fork, it will always gain in value. Not right now when it's volatile, but the more people that buy and hold and want to use it, the value is going to go up. Uh, Just because, you know, in 2140, it's going to be, there will be no new Bitcoin added. There's a story in here about... Uh, I think it's it's these giant rocks on this island, and they're used as money, and instead of them being moved from person to person, essentially, there'd be almost like a sign on these rocks that say this is owned by whoever, right? And if someone wanted a house, right, okay, I'm going to exchange my giant rock for this house right and so they would gather up the entire village gather up everybody and say this rock is now owned by this individual so i guess what i'm trying in essence to say is that that's what bitcoin can do but it can be moved a lot faster right the ability to transfer and have transactions is a lot faster in this way right so the the ledger the ledger that keeps a list of who has ownership of what Bitcoin, everybody has access to that. You could pull up a computer right now, start running the Bitcoin ledger, and you would have who owns what. And you don't know exactly who it is because it's you have almost like a code name. It's really but a wallet thing with,
0: destination, right? Like you, I could have 50 different wallets that each have a little bit of Bitcoin. You don't know how much I have.
1: Correct. Go back to your original question because I think I've... I've hit it in a weird way.
0: No, you're fine. I don't remember necessarily what my original question was, <laughs> but I can I can give you a, a different question. One of the criticisms that sometimes I might hear about cryptocurrencies, decentralization, all of this is there is nothing backing it up, right? The only thing that allows Bitcoin to have any value is that you tell me it has value and I believe you. The case for fiat currency and this might not be the most well articulated case but it's what comes to mind right now is the reason that i keep american dollars in my wallet is because the united states government has said that this is legal tender for goods and services and if i'm in trouble with the law if i'm in trouble with anything like that i know that that money can get me out of that situation and to whatever degree it can also the government enforces everything in life. Right. So if there's something that someone else isn't giving me what I'm due, I know that if it was in U.S. dollars, the U.S. government can come and have my back and say, "Nope, because of this agreement, you are owed this amount of money. Right. So who polices Bitcoin? I think the answer to that is, oh, we all do. But that gets into the category of, okay, and who proves that it has value?
1: So the proof of value you're actually turning energy right so what this mining is doing is it's converting electrical energy into a store of value right so the cost right people oftentimes worry about is bitcoin a waste of energy right to put it in a different way but is it really environmentally damaging is one of the ways right. that
0: I've heard it asked
1: but that's kind of the point, right? You're turning energy. You're turning energy. That's what it's backed by, right? It's turning energy into a data, right? In into a ledger, right? So you're converting that energy into data uh, in order to back it. Try it right if uh, Cody chimes in.
2: Absolutely. So, I, Paul, I think to, to your question about what's backing it, the same can be said for gold, right? So, all, all things considered, gold is a rock. It has value because we as a society say it has value. Bitcoin is a network. Um, it only has value if enough people say it has value. So, I think the argument that we say that the U.S. dollar has value because it's backed by the government isn't necessarily true. I think that our system in the U.S. is the best system that we have in the world. But if you look at some of the other smaller countries uh, around the world, I think Lebanon just recently lost 90% of their currency. That was that was a, a pretty recent one, right? So whenever that happens, people lose trust in that currency. And ultimately, that currency is what will die out because it gets inflated.
0: Yeah. and And I recognize that the reason that even though we are inflating our currency, that we haven't lost the trust and lost values because the U.S. government and the U.S. military, like if I go and I bring my U.S. dollars into Europe or into the Middle East or into Asia, there are a lot of countries where I can still get products and services for those U.S. dollars. That's not true of any other currency in the world. If I bring a euro to Australia, they're going to look at you funny. But the fact that the U.S. government has the presence around the world that it does that's what I'm saying allows it to have the backing and the belief in the currency. And maybe I'm coming to that from a bad angle, or maybe they talk about that in more nuance in the book uh, that I'm not understanding. And I'm definitely- so in two thousand
1: nine when Bitcoin was started. I think it started and it wasn't used for money up and until two thousand nine. The total USD value transacted was zero. In 2017, it was 375590943877 So when we talk about is it backed by something, it's backed by all these people who believe it to be a currency. That's so what I you, said, right? Like- right. But you can transact right now with anyone in the world who's willing to accept Bitcoin. Right? So that's the thing, Right. If the United States declines, if it falls, if people don't trust our dollar anymore, people will still trust Bitcoin because it's decentralized, right? Play, and, play the devil's advocate here. If the Hey, that's normally my role.
0: That is, but in this case, you read the book, so I have to play the, the part. If the U.S. government declines enough that our infrastructure falls apart and we don't have reliable
1: connection to the internet, then we don't have our Bitcoin, right? In essence there's a section in the back of this book that goes through a lot of these different questions i'm For curious instance, about a couple
0: there there's another thing that came to mind so the the government falling apart and therefore infra- infrastructure falling apart wasn't the first one the first one that i thought was okay if basically i'm imagining this correctly the people that are doing the mining are different nodes on a network that are verifying the process as it's happening saying yes this bitcoin was transferred from tommy to paul and from Paul to Cody and 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 back. Is there a I, I can't think of the right word, but like a load limit where if a number of those nodes go offline, they are no longer able to successfully verify. And has anybody looked at the geography of where everybody is on that to see like oh if the I know this is like a little bit of a apocalyptic scenario, but the Yellowstone volcano decides it's actually going to erupt. One of those things that is going to be, obviously, there's bigger problems in the world than what I'm asking about. But if people decide, hey, I'm going to put my life savings into this form of currency, is there a chance that a catastrophic catastrophic event could make it unusable?
1: So I think that is, in essence, a, a possibility. But I think you made the point as to saying that it wouldn't really matter, Right. No one's gonna accept dollars in a zombie apocalypse, right? Like it's guns and bullets and food. Right? So people might accept gold. That's the for sure. For right? sure. But again, why? Why would I accept gold if because you know, I can hold it? <laughs> well, you can you can hold your Bitcoin in your digital wallet. If you get a wallet, right, and you transfer Bitcoin to that wallet, right? unless one. yes uh, unless someone literally has access to that nobody can access those bitcoin right so you've heard probably funny stories i think tim tim uh the comedian tim dylan tim dylan tim dylan did a bit where it was like a, a movie trailer and it was this guy who had like 10 bitcoin or, or like a hundred thousand bitcoin on a computer and they only had like six more attempts on the password and it's like dad what the was not and they're like screaming at his funeral or grave or whatever and uh that's what's interesting it's the it's the only money that you can take with you to the grave
0: <laughs> that you can bury with you is the right way to say that right? but it
1: also it also then strengthens the network right because now you're you're reducing the overall total bitcoin available Right.
0: I heard about that. I heard that there was a guy in London, actually, that had a computer and had either two or three attempts left. And he like was refusing to because he had twenty seven thousand Bitcoin on it or something. And it was worth, you know, one hundred and ninety million dollars when Bitcoin
1: was at its peak. Is that is that talked about? I don't think it's talked about in here because this came out in like twenty seventeen. So honestly, like some of the some of the data is almost out of date, not. Yeah, out of date. You had mentioned one other thing, and I'm trying to think back to it. Was it me talking about my apocalyptic scenarios? Yes. So he talks about, it's actually how to kill Bitcoin, a beginner's guide, right? And so he goes through the different possible attacks. When you're talking about the the different nodes, right? So say 50% of the nodes somehow get blacked out or are no longer running the Bitcoin ledger, right? The network. If that were to happen... Now it's easier to do a 51% attack. And a 51% attack means you gather up 51% owners of Bitcoin and you say, let's change the code. But what's exciting about that is if you try and hack and either steal or verify something that's not true, you literally just broke the integrity of what you're stealing. So therefore, there's no incentive to steal it. There's no incentive to be a criminal with this stuff. Another point on here was, is this for criminals? More criminals have been caught using Bitcoin because it's a ledger, right? And everybody knows where things are being transacted to. There was something about the US government I think it was back in the
0: fall or over the summer. It was like the third biggest seizure of Bitcoin ever. And they they got like 7,000 Bitcoins on this wallet that had been stolen from somewhere else. Right. So it, it might not be that there's an incentive to, to digitally go in and change the code and break it. Wait, but, but of Paul, course- I thought you couldn't hold it. What do you mean? They they stole it? They might have gone in and digitally transferred it to themselves, but I thought that they actually stole it. And I could be wrong. Do you do you remember the story at all?
2: You do? Go yeah, ahead, sure. Cody.
0: T- yeah. t- t- tell me about it.
2: Uh, I think I know the story that you're talking about, but to Tommy's point, Bitcoin, unless you have the private key, it can't be stolen. Um, I think the instance that you're talking about, either they tracked down the person or they stored their keys somewhere that was unsafe. So that's another thing. And that's... We can we can get into you know how how you store your bitcoin that's that's another story whenever we talk about things like well we, we we just saw with ftx right you can't trust a third party to hold your key your private keys and i think that the situation that you're referring to was a situation where people were trusting others to hold their private keys for them and in doing so some of their assets were stolen
0: it's interesting. I wasn't even thinking about the fact that this is really our second episode talking about uh, <laughs> digital currency, cryptocurrency and all that. So, yeah. but yeah, sorry, Go I, ahead,
1: Tommy. Well, the point that I just want to make is that if anybody tries to hack or mess with the network, it just reduces trust in Bitcoin. Right. And the only reason Bitcoin has value is because people trust it. So, so what is not incentivizing governments to do that right now? So I've thought about that, too. Why wouldn't governments try and do what they can to eliminate Bitcoin, right? And I think that maybe that could have been done when it started out, when there were maybe only you know a handful of nodes running the ledger. But I think it's now become too big for a government to get 51%. Too big to fail? Okay. No, oh, no, no, I'm not... <laughs> You son of a you son of a guy.
0: <laughs> well, I, I have a couple of questions about that. So you say fifty one percent is required. The creator, I don't he has some fake name that people Satoshi Nakamoto. Yeah, because we don't actually know who he is. Correct. Um, so we just gave him a Japanese name. Seems slightly racist to me, but hey. No, no,
1: that that was the I think what code name that he used?
2: So that was the pseudo name that he used whenever he uh, was interacting with people on different chats on Discord. Uh, okay. Well, yeah. So he started the network on a Discord, right? And he used a pseudonym, Satoshi Nakamoto, and he wrote a white paper, and that was his name. Uh, I think a lot of people will agree that it's multiple people. It wasn't just one person. Uh, if you, if you think of the the incentive structure and how Bitcoin operates, I don't I don't know that one person is is capable of doing exactly what he did and understanding the need for decentralization the way he understood it.
0: That wallet that is theoretically owned by that person or people has a significant portion
1: of the total Bitcoin that will ever be produced, correct? He, I believe, kind of was mining for up to a million coins and then went code red. And if you look at the ledger, there's still a million Bitcoins in that wallet, Yeah. right? And so... In essence, he's one strength in the network. And if Bitcoin becomes a money, he owns one twenty-month of all the money.
0: Um, So that's my question is there's the Pareto distribution that says 20 percent of the people will do 80 percent of the work, whatever that is. However, you find yourself in in life, probably the top 80 percent is owned by 20 percent, something like that. So when you look at the World Economic Forum, when you look at these Bodies that want to change rules, that want to govern, it wouldn't seem, and maybe that's just the conspiracy theorist in me, but it wouldn't seem unreasonable that there could be a collection of the top people, the top owners of Bitcoin, the richest people that would be able to change the rules to advantage them after this is adopted in a way where everybody has, you know,
1: 0.0004. Bitcoin's in their wallet because that's all they can. So do, they're normal he, people. <laughs> here, here's the thing, Paul. If at any point they make a change, even even if they have fifty-one percent, why would people trust it anymore, right? So then, that's exactly what you're talking about. The backing goes to zero. There's no incentive to do that. There
0: is if you have certain goals. So if your goal is to make everyone poor get everyone to invest into a currency that you then manage to eliminate the
1: need for and the trust Are you talking in? about Rick and Morty when he turns the value of one of, of, of his the
0: units into zero of the units changing right.
1: one to a zero. Yeah. So, that's a little bit what I'm saying. Honestly, Paul, it's, it's probably past my knowledge.
0: Yeah, right. And I'm, I'm just throwing things out there. I'm, I'm basically trying mm-hmm. to get you to steel man, the argument for Bitcoin, because as someone that you know was very interested, I think like you were, Cody, especially in 2020 when, when all this was happening and the development of theoretically Web3 and NFTs and some of these ways, smart contracts, all of these were things I was very curious about and I wanted to understand more. Because if you can imagine being back in 1997 and knowing that, OK, there is going to be a internet bubble, but there's also going to be an entire new section of the economy that's going to take up most of the economy, and that's going to be the internet. It said, oh, are we at another stage of development here where there's going to be a new way that people inter- interact with each other, serve each other, connect with each other, and there's going to be huge opportunity here. So I didn't know if, if that was gotten into at all. If you guys see a future with that. And we've been talking for a while, so I do want to say like if you have something that you would want readers to know before reading this book, let me know what that is.
1: Yeah, so I'll just do my my closing thoughts and then I'll let Cody do his closing thoughts, but I think this is a book for anybody that wants to create wealth. Whether you do it with Bitcoin or gold or other sort of investments, it's good to understand what money is. Right? It's you're storing value, right? The ability to transact it. It's an economics course in a book, right? And yes, it's detailed and it's not the easiest read. But if you want to understand how history or how money was created, what its uses are, and where we're currently at, I think it's a must read. Cody, I'll i uh, will give you the stand for any any final thoughts.
2: Uh, yeah, so I got a lot of final thoughts, but I, I was taking notes throughout the throughout the, some of the questions. I guess my final thought for this podcast is, and this is what I enjoyed so much about this book, was a talk about the rabbit hole, right? So going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, and I feel like this started me on that path. So a lot of the things that we've talked about, or that you guys have talked about in this podcast are things that I've came across after reading this book and really questioned whether or not bitcoin was uh, was was a viable investment option and could it potentially serve as as the money of the future i don't i don't i don't know that we'll know that just yet but i think for a money to become the money of the future it has to start off as volatile that we can't just migrate to something to some new form of money without any hiccups so yeah i think that's my that's my uh, closing thoughts mm.
0: That's that's awesome. Thank you. Tom, or I'll, I'll let both of you answer this as well. What do you give the book out of 10?
1: I think it's applicability is good for almost everybody to just, you know, don't even read the chapters on Bitcoin. You know, forget that. Like, yes, it, I think it's good knowledge to understand, and especially if you're looking for different investments, but read it for the first 150 pages. Read it so that you understand what money is and how it's important. I think I'm going to give it an eight, just a straight eight. Um, Straight eight. It is, it's it's difficult. It's not the easiest thing to pick up and read, uh, but there's a lot of intelligent history and wisdom about money in this book. So that's what I'll give it.
2: Awesome. Cody, what's Um, your rating? I was going to say a lot of the same things Tommy said. It's not an easy read, but... Uh, I enjoyed learning about Bitcoin and the history of money and where it could possibly go. So I, I agree with Tommy. I'd give it a I'd give it an eight as well. Um, right, I enjoyed wow. the book. It was just a, it was not the easiest, uh, easiest read.
0: Thank you for coming on and joining us and, and discussing the book and, and your recommendation of it. This was, once again, the Bitcoin Standard, the decentralized alternative to central banking by Safadin Amous. And I apologize to him for butchering his name. Uh, <laughs> And thank you very much for listening. Give us a follow and all of that. We appreciate it. If you have any books that you suggest either Tommy or I or both of us read, leave a comment on this episode on Spotify. We'll read those and uh, we'll see if we can get those books in quick from other listeners. So thank you and have a great day. Bye.
1: We ask you to follow us on Instagram at Brace.22. Paul's Twitter is at Paul from Brace and be sure to email us at brace22 at protonmail.com. Please leave us a five-star review wherever you are listening and send to a friend if you found value in this discussion. Thanks. We appreciate it.